Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. Today I'm here with Joel Dinnerstein to talk about his book, The Origins of Cool in Post-War America. Joel, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Rebecca. So I'm hoping you can just start out by telling how you came about writing this book, what brought you to looking at The Origins of Cool. I uh, was pretty interested in cool, as was everybody I knew. Um, in high school. So I grew up in Brooklyn in the seventies and cool was, it didn't have the meanings it has today. It was actually a fairly profound concept. Maybe you didn't think of it as profound, but it had to do with having a certain kind of code and the people you emulate. And I, uh, I thought about it for years. And then in graduate school, I had a chance in a seminar to do a paper called Notes Toward a Study of Blank. So I did Notes Toward a Study of Cool. It's actually my first graduate student paper. And I thought it was a set of shared meanings. And my inquiry has always been based on one question, right? What do we mean when we say someone is cool? What are those qualities? And I asked the first five people I knew that question, and I got five completely different answers. Mm. And I neither knew how that had happened nor why we had such disparate meanings. So on the one hand, I knew, okay, I have a project if I want to follow this up. And what I would learn is that my meanings were actually specific to New York and Brooklyn in the 70s, and actually fairly specific to a distinctively African-American cool that uh, in terms of my junior high school and high school and the people that I emulated. But I now understood there was a history and that the concept had shifted. And, you know, if you're somebody with an American studies PhD or on your way to one, it's very exciting to have a project uh, and a little scary because there wasn't much work on this when I started in like 1992, 1993. There's now a shelf full of books, but there wasn't much. So I spent all these years finding my own kind of path to how to get the documentation and make it kind of a rigorous study of how the concept and the word came into American culture and to some extent why it has remained for 80 years. So in your book, you sort of set us up and, and gave, give us a little prelude in Paris in 1949 and then sort of give the introductions to the origins of cool. So can you talk a little bit about that before we move in to some of your case studies, I guess we would call them about um, the people that you look at in the, the folks that you examine who are cool? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I consider this a book of cultural history. So I'm just drawing on who people think are cool in a given generation. Uh, I'm not the arbiter of cool. It's not me necessarily. But on the other hand, if you were to ask people, you know, one person who represents the concept, in fact, the two answers you tend to get are either Miles Davis or James Dean, both mm-hmm. of whom I discuss in the book. But the book is kind of divided in half between kind of reductively the 1940s and the 1950s. 
And so I start with this moment uh, that I find amazingly compelling in Paris in 1949, in which Miles Davis is a very young man and he is playing on stage and the crowd includes the existentialist circle of Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir and their circle, including Juliette Greco, who is then a popular actress and will later become a popular singer. And that night actually begins this lifelong affair between Miles Davis and Juliet Greco, uh, who in fact is kind of the model uh, for Audrey Hepburn. And they fall in love so quickly that Sartre says, why don't you move here? And Miles Davis doesn't, but he does wind up a couple years later directing a very, not directing, providing a film score for a very early film noir, not a very early one for France uh, by Louis Malle. And so what I wanted to do with this moment was capture the aspects of cool in the 1940s when the worst, when the word first shows up are really in three artistic fields. It's in jazz, it's in film noir, and it's in existentialism. So my first three chapters are about cool as it started in jazz through Lester Young, legendary saxophonist, uh, cool as it starts kind of in noir and Hollywood through Humphrey Bogart. And then cool as it comes through from the existentialists, particularly through Albert Camus. And I wanted people to read those concurrently. Like they're all actually separate strands of cool that are interrelated. Uh, but each one, in a sense, uh, <laughs> rebounds off each other in many ways. Uh, and then the second part of the book, I get to people who are more commonly thought of as cool in an iconic way. Marlon Brando and James Dean and Sinatra and uh, Elvis Presley. And so, but I needed to start in the forties. First of all, it's when the word first crosses over. Uh, so it's kind of the hidden history. And second of all, because those figures don't come out of nowhere. Um, Elvis and Brando, that's not like, you know, the genesis of American culture. Right. And I appreciate it. I like that. The, what you say, we think about Miles Davis, we think about James Dean, we think about Marlon Brando, and that you wait to get to them, right? And so you set us up. So you, you set us up, as you said, with Lester Young and Humphrey Bogart and Camus. Can you start by talking about Lester Young? Because you sort of say he is really the birth of cool and what he's doing in jazz um, really brings cool to the forefront. And so can you talk a bit about him and about that chapter? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Um, Lester Young does not coin the modern usage of cool, but he does bring it in to modern culture, uh, which is to say he disseminates it. Uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is Lester Young actually pioneers a cool aesthetic in jazz. Not only does it lead to a genre called cool jazz, but it is an aesthetic that means that you need to actually on stage in public be relaxed, right? Cool is actually a synonym for being relaxed and still need to be artistically innovative and exciting. So in a sense, a cool aesthetic is how you can actually either excite others uh, artistically and yet you yourself remain cool and relaxed. Uh, so he does that. He does that with Billie Holiday, who is his musical soulmate. Um, and she's more familiar to most people. And of course, her songs have lyrics. So that helps in Lester's jazz position. But I, you know, I don't call Lester Young the father of cool, but he is. 
in as much as in his generation of big band swing era tenor saxophonists and within African-American jazz culture, he is the one who uses the word. And he is the one who first says, I'm cool, meaning I am relaxed here in my own style in this environment. And to some extent, we still use it, which is to say, you know, how are you doing? Like, I'm cool. I'm all right. You know, this is good. Uh, but there are many meanings that have shifted, and I trace some of those in the book. But it really is Lester Young, and people said about him that he was, in fact, one of the most relaxed, unhurried people they had ever met. And in his actual jazz solos, he is able to both be relaxed, use space in music, uh, time and accent and silence, and as well have an effect on other musicians to slow them down, to make them play much more what is sometimes called in jazz in the pocket uh, than they have been. So it's in music, in language, and then he brought in some stylistic uh, things that are also still associated with cool. So due to kind of racism and the fact that African-American uh, public entertainers had to Uncle Tom, as it was called, or Tom, and smile all the time like Louis Armstrong would, as if to say, you know, I'm happy with my place in society. Lester Young sort of changed all that. And he began to wear sunglasses on stage and even at night. And this caught on immediately among jazz musicians as a way to defy a certain kind of uh, both racism and familiarity. And as if to project a sort of quiet rebellion saying, we don't Uncle Tom, we are artists and we're not going to really play that game. And so this whole notion of sunglasses being associated with cool, which they are, Lester Young's not entirely responsible, but he is in as much as in the post-war era, jazz was the dominant subculture in this country in the 40s and 50s, and particularly in New York and San Francisco. And so all the other artists, the beat generation writers, the abstract expressionists, the comedians, all of them were looking at jazz musicians as models um, for improvisation, for style. And cool becomes this word that just everybody becomes kind of obsessed with and crosses over kind of 10 years later. Right. And it seems throughout the book, that notion that jazz is sort of this foundation for film, for um, right, for authors, for novelists, for even the philosophers um, is really important to this notion and idea of cool. And and you move into then Humphrey Bogart and and sort of noir and cool noir and how Bogart became cool and was not I don't know if I want to say was not always looked at as cool or the, in in other circumstances might not have been seen as cool but had this this sort of coolness to him that brought on noir and birth noir. So can you talk a little bit about film noir and, and Bogart and his role in the, this notion of popular culture and cool? Yeah, there's a couple of different ways uh, that Bogart's example is fascinating. So one is that uh, it was a mystery to me that uh, uh, actors like Humphrey Bogart and Robert Mitchum were always referred to as cool. That wasn't a mystery to me. But it was never a word used in their time. The only people who use the word cool the way we do it today were either jazz musicians or jazz fans until about 1953 or 1954. So for 10 solid years, those are the only people who use it. So if you look back at any of the documents or any of the reviews of any of those films, there is never a notion that Bogart is cool or that Mitchum is cool. So it's interesting in that 
their aesthetic is cool. Again, it's the same thing of being relaxed and yet having a very sort of exciting, simmering complexity and ambiguity underneath, um, which is very similar to the cool aesthetic in jazz. But the term wasn't used. So it was one of the fascinating mysteries for me when I did my research as to why that was kind of retrospectively applied to these guys. Because now all their biographies of, you know, always say, you know, this guy was, you know, the sort of emblematic figure of cool, whether it's Bogart or it's Alan Ladd or it's Robert Mitchum. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that um, one of my theories for the book, and in a sense, even for a broader application of cool, is that cool shifts meanings. And so do our icons. They're related to all the social and economic forces at a given moment. So Humphrey Bogart, when he breaks through first in High Sierra as a film noir, and then in Maltese Falcon, which starts the whole genre of film noir, and then in Casablanca, which is only a year later, and is kind of a noir in a certain way, Bogart is 42 years old. He is a grizzled, short, unathletic man. He is the least likely sex symbol and if you were thinking that there's kind of an objective model for a sex symbol uh, that you can imagine. And not only that, a couple of years before, he was typecast in Hollywood as a gangster. He was the number one gangster actor at Warner Brothers in starting in 1937. So how would this figure become a sex symbol? And in fact, people thought he was still a tough guy. And then they began to get all these fan mail, starting with High Sierra, that women wanted to see him in more romantic roles. So he had crossed over from what was seemingly completely opposite from being a gangster and a villain to being a romantic lead and an admirable figure. And that's kind of amazing. It could only have happened, I think, in the Great Depression or after the Great Depression. What Bogart represented for people was a sort of grizzled, resilient figure who had been through hard times and had his sense of humor and was still kind of relaxed in the face of adversity, but tough enough to handle what happens next. And that is what the Bogart persona winds up being. That is kind of it in a, in a nutshell. And so he's very much reflecting what an entire generation needs to see on film after sort of 30s kind of musicals and um, screwball comedies, their leading man has to have a lot more resilience and a lot more toughness. So it makes sense that he comes kind of out of the gangster kind of darker place um, with us with his own sort of code of ethics. Then he comes from sort of the tall, attractive, you know, good looking romantic lead place. So that is what Bogart's achievement is, I think, at that moment and why it is completely surprising so cool becomes associated not only with a certain icon at a certain time, but with a set of uh, qualities that a generation is looking for. So it's in Kuwait, right? What are we looking for? What are we yearning for? And then suddenly it takes embodied form. Someone shows up who's what you're looking for. And so that happens with James Dean. It happens with Elvis. Um, and so it happens with Bogart. He is what they were looking for. Right. And, and you talk about those first three chapters sort of fitting together. So when you talk about Albert Camus, you, you sort of, the, one of the first things you talk about is how when he goes to, I think it was Vogue, right, in the mid-1940s, and everyone thought he looked like this young Bogart, right? So there's this image of Bogart that translates into this 
existential author who is very different from um, the Bogart of film noir, right? And th- that Bogart. So can you talk a little bit about then Camus and the French existentialism and the French existentialist and what he is doing that sort of also adds to this idea and this image of cool? Yeah. I mean, Camus loved that people thought he looked like Bogart. And in fact, later in life, he would actually play into the image I, I, I tried very hard in this book to show the intersections of these areas, popular of uh, film noir and jazz and existentialism, and then later popular music and film in the fifties. Because part of the problem with academic work is it tends to be narrowly focused within someone's expertise, right? So the film scholars do film, and the philosophers do philosophers, and the literary people do literary people, um, and the music people do music. And so one of the benefits of my field, um, and I have a doctorate in American studies, is that it's interdisciplinary as a field. Like that's what you're trained to do is to find connections across disciplines. Uh, And so I had often noticed that people, for example, called film noir a pulp existentialism. uh, And people had called the jazz musician an existential figure. But I had never seen anyone do the kind of work as to what would show that this was all about this moment, this post-1945 moment in American society, to some extent European as well, as to why these would all appeal. So it was a quite rewarding find when I discovered that um, not only did Camus, of course, know who Bogart was, but the French loved film noir. The French, in fact, named film noir as a genre. We actually didn't use that term in the United States till the 1970s. And what I also wanted to show is that there is no separation of popular culture and what we call higher culture or literature, that everyone's living in the same moment. So, you know, Simone de Beauvoir saw all of the film noirs and writes about them. And... Uh, Camus saw, of course, the Bogart films and the film critics in France thought Bogart was the key existential actor. And so it's it's only more gratifying to me, not only that Bogart represents a certain kind of existential resilience in the face of a kind of lost meaning after World War II and the Holocaust and the atomic bombs, uh, like, well, who are we now? What is an individual about? in this kind of, in a period in which there seem to be technological forces that are kind of out of our control and and sort of a real crisis in the Cold War. And I know I'm giving these broad strokes about the historical context, and I give more detail in the book, but you still need figures in art that are going to sort of allow you to participate or think about it, that we think upon them. And Bogart was that figure. And Camus is actually, as a writer, somebody who's very popular in America among intellectuals and college students. Um, And Camus was kind of a real-life Bogart. He was a freedom fighter. He was an editor and a journalist. Um, You know, he's big in the French resistance. And he was, that's what he was doing. He was trying to articulate what can you do as an individual now in a culture that seems to overwhelm individuals. And so I think it's actually quite useful to think about Bogart as representing that kind of figure, at least as a male figure in film at that moment, and that Camus is writing it. So depending on sort of whether you're more disposed to liter- literature or film or both, you can at least find your way into thinking about, huh, you know, this is the kind of 
image of resilience and toughness, yet with, the, with yet with a sense of humor and a certain understanding of your past, like that is admirable. That's what I want to emulate. Right, and and so you talk about these three men, and then then you bring in Billie Holiday and Simone de Beauvoir, and and talk about sort of how this image of cool or this idea of cool is not only in this very masculine space and, and, and you bridge with these two women, both right, like philosophy and literature as well as jazz. And so can you talk about Billie Holiday and De Beauvoir and what they were doing and, and how you sort of see them fitting into this image of cool? You know, Beauvoir, uh, again, to talk about, how much these intersections between jazz and noir and existentialism were quite real to the people who lived through that period. Beauvoir went to see Billie Holiday in her, in her four month trip to, to the United States in 1947. She made a point of going to Billie Holiday and she said she went to Billie Holiday's club, which was not a place, but it was where she was singing that night. And uh, in general, it's just, it was kind of shocking for me to find that she knew a great deal about Billie Holiday, enough to seek her out as soon as she was in New York. Um, in terms of cool, the cool has generally been a masculine aesthetic and mode until really very recently, but certainly until the seventies. And what I mean by that is almost nobody used the word cool to describe any woman with perhaps the exception of Lauren Bacall, um, which is interesting in and of itself, but uh, on the one hand, Duke Ellington called Billie Holiday the essence of cool. And Billie Holiday, in public memory, is thought of someone who was kind of a mess. She's a heroin addict. She picked really, you know, sort of dominant boyfriends who didn't treat her well. Um, but what he meant is that in terms of her stagecraft and her self-preservation and the control she had of her art form and her voice – that that's what he meant. He meant that both in the sense of a cool aesthetic and on stage, Billie Holiday did not move, did not shake her hips, did not try to be sexy, did not use any kind of histrionic or broad gestures. She was an interpreter of song and she stood very elegantly and regally on stage as kind of all the testimony uh, from the time uh, supports. And he, Ellington meant that if you are watching her on stage, she is the essence of what we mean by a certain kind of controlled power that is under your control. You seem relaxed. And yet what you're doing artistically is both incredibly difficult and also very emotive. And yet you have remained relaxed. So that's what he meant with Beauvoir. Nobody called Beauvoir cool, although I do in a lot of ways. In part because both Beauvoir and Billie Holiday were quite realistic about gender dynamics and the parameters in the 40s and 50s when women had very little opportunity, widespread discrimination, were banned from half the Ivy League schools in this country. And Beauvoir writes the only important work of feminism in that period, The Second Sex in 1949. And she writes it after becoming friends with Richard Wright, the African-American author who lives in Paris, who tells her about racial oppression. And she goes, well, hmm, that sounds to me very similar to gender oppression or at least second-class status. Uh, and 
the interesting thing is she always deferred to Sartre as if he was superior, the superior mind, the superior person. And it's striking to me that that seems very similar to the fact that Billie Holiday always deferred to the men in her life. So neither of them were making any claims for female empowerment. And yet in their work, Beauvoir's philosophy uh, and her literature, because her novels won every prize in France, and Billie Holiday in her, uh, not only in her music, but in the fact that she pretty much founded an entire school of vocal artistry in this country. Both of them would have been called cool if anybody called women cool, but nobody did. So to some extent, I put them in chapter four as a way of saying we should be thinking about these women alongside all these men in this period as the major artists who contribute in the same way. But in a cultural historical way, nobody would have used that term and nobody did. Right. And so so this is this group. And then you talk about before you move on to the sort of second half and you move into the 60s, you have your fifth chapter gets into this cool convergence and you talk about 1950 and the third man and sort of bringing everything you have in this first section together. So can you talk, I don't know if there's anything else you want to talk about, about this section before we sort of move into that second half of the book. Yeah. So on the fifth chapter, I just wanted to clarify what I had sort of drawn out in the earlier chapters uh, on the one hand, that sir, the third man as a noir is an overtly existential film uh, about sort of the Cold War and a certain crisis of kind of Western values. Uh, and then I wanted to really make an argument for the jazz musician as the main existential artistic figure in that period. Uh, and I used some... James Baldwin and um, a couple of other writers and some quotes from Sartre, in fact, as well. And so that's the chapter in which I'm showing the connections uh, more overtly. I'm just sort of clarifying and bringing together the argument I've made in the first half before I move on to the 50s and prosperity in a kind of new, younger generation. Right. So your sort of second half gives us a bit of... Um... You start it with this idea of an interlude, a generational interlude between 1953 and 1963. You talk a little bit about hip and cool and give us a quick overview of that before you move into Kerouac and jazz and zen and, and as you say, the cool mind. So do you want to talk a little bit about that interlude and then how we move into Kerouac from from there and why you start with Kerouac at the beginning of the second half of the book? Yeah. The great problem I had to solve in the book, which <laughs> I realized uh, at one point was how is it that we can think of uh, Sinatra and Bogart and Mitchum as cool. And we also think of Brando and Dean and Elvis as cool and Kerouac. Uh, Cause they, they, op they occupy very different, aesthetics and they occupy very different sort of approaches to their art forms. And so I realized that uh, they were actually icons for different generations that, uh, that in the forties uh, that Bogart and even, you know, Lester Young and um, Beauvoir and Camus, they were icons for the generation that lived through the war. Sometimes, you know, we call it the greatest generation the people who lived through the Great Depression in World War II. 
And they sort of represented a kind of post-war anxiety and settling down. And they're the ones who would be the parents of the baby boomers. And they start settling down and America becomes prosperous really around 1952. So in public memory, we think of the post-war period as prosperity, but that doesn't really start till 1952. So the first half of the book is really about that generation returning to America and who they emulate. And the second part is actually about a younger generation, both before the boomers, a group that used to be called the silent generation, but that term sort of not used that much anymore. And they are choosing new, very young models. And they're coming from a completely different context, right? A prosperous kind of America that has full employment, that is in the midst of a sort of consumer, uh, 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 the first kind of burst of consumer abundance and new cars and a real sort of feeling of the possibility of liberation and being a teenager. And they all are going to choose people who reflect them and sort of their needs, both sort of the anguish of adolescence and sort of some deeper promise um, of a sort of more joyful, both life and music. So they're going to choose rock and roll and Elvis as it comes out of rhythm and blues. They're going to choose James Dean, who, you know, is often called the first American teenager because he is the first American teenager on film. Before that, young people worked for a living um, or were rich, but we didn't have this whole demographic of teenagers. And I start with Kerouac in that section because he winds up being an icon in a way that is slippery in terms of the time period. Because the, the book gets published, published in 1957 on the road, which makes him kind of an instant icon. But he wrote the book in 1951, and it's about his road trips in 1947 to 1950. So it's actually a book about the 40s that winds up becoming sort of a guidebook to how to self-actualize or, you know, leave behind your parents' uh, kind of view of the world. Uh, but it comes out six years later, and it gets uh, basically embraced by a different generation. So I, I did the interlude to say, okay, here's the story so far, and here's how it's going to inflect differently for the next generation. I'm going to use Kerouac as the crossover figure because his sense of being beat, which originally meant being sort of exhausted and depleted when he first wrote it and called them the beat generation. By the late 50s, he's saying that beat means beatific or angelic or saintly, and he means that they're searching for a new vision that will sort of become, in a very stereotyped way, the kind of peace and love uh, sort of romantic idea in the 1960s. And, and Kerouac also seems to infuse Zen and his religion with jazz and with sort of the way he thinks about his generation and how he represents them in poetry as well as in his fiction. So there seems to be some tie-in that you get at with that as well. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up. So just a quick addition. That's the other reason. Kerouac, his music is jazz. Not only that, he bases his entire literary model on the jazz solo. And he calls what he does bop prosody or bebop prosody, which sort of translates as jazz prose. And in his sort of very underrated book of poetry called Mexico City Blues, he says in the epigraph, I want to be considered a jazz poet who is blowing 242 choruses on a Sunday afternoon. He explicitly says, I am a jazz writer and a jazz poet. 
And so he too represents that crossover in a sense. That's his African-American musical form that he finds both liberating and as an artistic model. And it happens at the same time, actually, that rock and roll has already taken over the next generation. So we have this kind of very uh, odd multi-layered effect of Kerouac bringing in kind of, kind of a 40s sense of these things about jazz and even kind of an upbeat existentialism layered directly on top of Elvis and Brando and James Dean. Right. And so so you've situated, like you said, you sort of, like he is sort of this, that, that um, beginning of this new form of cool. So then you move into sort of the, I guess, the cool that we we know that that is more familiar right to the american pop culture and so you start talk you talk about sinatra and this move to vegas and what that means and so can you talk about sort of in in and also in this chapter which i really love you go into um dragnet and police procedurals and sort of that <laughs> that move to cool so can you talk a little bit about the role of sinatra and the role of this sort of this this post World War II, what was going on during that time? Yeah, Sinatra is actually the other crossover figure. Like he and Kerouac are both people who have a sort of foot in the forties. Although Sinatra has you know more than a foot in the forties, um, but whose actual star and their at least in terms of their uh, their iconicity is cool uh, happens in the nineteen fifties. And so Sinatra is perfect because Sinatra is kind of a teen idol. He's a teen idol like Elvis is during World War II when he's a skinny 20-year-old kid who's singing with big bands. And in fact, there's a certain amount of resentment uh, by American uh, armed forces and soldiers because like they had left their girlfriends at home and like their girlfriends were worshiping Frank Sinatra, who is not in the war, and they are. Uh, but he winds up completely uh, rebranding himself, not in a kind of commercial way that is conscious, but in the late 1940s, he winds up having a real sort of uh, artistic period uh, that is something of a drought. And then he is in love and loses badly uh, many, many times and it breaks his heart and he comes out on the other side as kind of the Sinatra we know, what Pete Hamill calls the Sinatra with the hat, right? That he then becomes the kind of interpretive singer that actually influences everyone in the world, and that includes Elvis and various other singers one wouldn't expect. Uh, and so Sinatra and Elvis wind up actually in 1956 sharing the billboard charts between them at the top because Sinatra represents the generation that greatest generation, they're now settled down and they are no longer like seeking a certain kind of noir anxiety, but Sinatra represents both a certain kind of past and a certain kind of artistic resilience. He is in a sense what Bogart was, except he takes his model to Las Vegas, this very new, what I like to call the pleasure frontier. You go out West and this time, instead of like, you know, finding yourself or, you know, fighting wars or any of the West things associated with Westerns, you have a new kind of pleasure frontier that he and the Rat Pack sort of create and create a mythology for. So I, I call the chapter from noir cool to Vegas cool. And Sinatra really represents that. He's even in a couple of film noirs and, you know, quits himself fairly respectably. So to some extent, the the... 
generational mode of that older generation now goes to Vegas. The noir part sort of, for me, becomes much less interesting in the 1950s because it goes to what we now call police procedurals. And so instead of having this ambiguous figure with a personal code of ethics who is trying to show his or her resilience, um, we now have traditional morality restored among authoritarian figures. And in Dragnet, they're really like mechanistic kind of cops, right? They don't even seem all that complex. And Dragnet, you know, is an immediately huge hit as a franchise. There are three movies. Um, and we get heist films, which are a form of noir, but they're all sort of a very different inflection than the noir of the 40s when you're watching Bogart or Mitchum uh, or anybody else just trying to find some individual dignity, even if that means breaking the law or sort of uh, forming your own code of ethics. And so noir splits. And Sinatra gets one half of it and he becomes the icon that is of prosperity for the old generation. And noirs continue to get made in forms and it's significant that there are no major new iconic figures that come out of film noir in the 1950s with the possible exception of Sterling Hayden, who has never been famous, but he was the only kind of young actor to emerge from noir in the 50s who had any kind of uh, both star power and cool power. Uh, so that's what happens. It's kind of a, you know, uh, a fascinating shift that you can trace. And I do trace through like eight movies and say, okay, here's how we can watch how, in a sense, the American mind is focusing on these movies and changing their attitudes. Uh, you know, the anthropologist Clifford Geertz once sort of said or referred to that popular culture is a society thinking out loud. And I've always really thought that that's how we should treat it, that it's not lesser than high culture. It's not ephemeral. It's a way you can sort of look at the collective mind once you study it in a micro way, kind of year to year. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you move. And so that makes sense. And then moving into looking at uh, James Dean and Marlon Brando and Elvis. Right. So this idea of the rebel and well, Elvis is sort of, multifaceted right but brando and dean on the screen on the big screen and so can you talk a little bit about sort of that and there's this nod back to camus right in this this sort of cool as rebel but can you talk a bit about um the what's go what happens then when brando and james dean and elvis come on the scene yeah actually i will you know use camus for a second um you know, Camus writes a book called The Rebel in 1951. And amazingly, it is the first study of rebellion, of an individual idea of rebellion ever in philosophy. Before that, it was assumed that rebellion always meant something political. It meant to change the system. And so within this period in which it seems like the forces are out of control and too large for any person, he's trying to figure out in that book in a lot of ways, um, what can one person do? And he says that the rebel is someone who draws a line in the sand and basically says, I won't take this treatment anymore and reserves for him or herself some kind of personal dignity. And what I use that for in cool is to say that if someone does that and other people gravitate toward that person or also rebel in that way, 
that's when you have cool, right? That's when you have what I call rebellion for others, uh, because your rebellion is now creating the conditions for others people rebellion for other people's rebellion, uh, as Lester Young did in jazz, or as Bogart did for both acting and a kind of working class uh, masculinity. So with uh, Brando and Dean and Elvis, you know Marlon Brando is the, in a sense, the model for how method acting changed Hollywood in terms of craft. And he's also the model for how actors began to fight back against producers and the system and create some power for themselves because he just, he was anti-authoritarian in every way. Uh, and he is the model. He is the arbiter of cool in that period. It's really odd to me that people focus on James Dean and James Dean worshiped Brando. Brando did everything first in style. He wore blue jeans first and a leather jacket and, you know, and rode a motorcycle in the wild one. Uh, so that generation remembers that, but now people really don't know who Brando was. And he was a great actor. I mean, he was an actor who was an artist. All his directors say about him, like nobody really directed Brando. He had an idea of what he wanted to do and you would talk to him and then he would go. And the point is that he improvised the way jazz musicians improvise. And of course, he too was a jazz fan who, in a sense, straddles the 40s and the 50s. So he's taking what a musician does when he or she improvises and creating something new. And he does that by physically inhabiting a character the way method acting teaches you and then imagining that person speaking, acting with other people walking around a room and it just changes everybody. So James Dean sees his first film called The Men in 1950, and then he immediately knows, okay, that's what I want to do. And he eventually gets a leather jacket, follows Brando, eventually at times follows Brando around at Hollywood parties. And the for me, the real uh, signal of how important Brando was to that generation and the new mode of cool was the first movie Elvis made in Hollywood. He ran into Brando at the commissary getting food and he introduced himself. And when he walked away, he told his friend, he said, oh my God, I just shook hands with Marlon Brando. And at the moment in which Elvis is like truly one of the biggest entertainers in the world, he's excited about meeting Marlon Brando and he worshiped both Brando and James Dean. So they're really related. And uh, I quote this thing in my book, which I find completely uh, fascinating, that uh, Kerouac writes this very small little piece in 1957 called The New Trinity of Love, Brando, Elvis, and Dean. And he says, American masculinity has changed because these three men have arrived on the scene and are not violent and seem to be compassionate. And they are creating a new kind of American male. It's just incredibly perceptive at that moment for a man who's not really of their generation right. in a lot of ways. <laughs> right. And so, so you move from these, so we talk, you know, you talk about these three and their role and, and how we think about those. And then you move into back to jazz, right? And as you said at the beginning of the interview, how we think of James Dean and Miles Davis is cool. So you talk about, Sonny Rollins and Miles Davis and this sort of post-war jazz and as well as bebop and this sort of introduction to bebop and cool. So can you talk a bit about their role in, in cool and, and how we define and think about cool? 
Yeah, actually, this is the only chapter that I, I confess is slightly out of the chronology in a way, because the actual bebop revolution happens in 1945 um, and 44 the, toward the end of the war. I mean, of course, stateside. And however, the actual figure of the jazz musician in a sort of broader American consciousness uh, really becomes more common and more uh, known in the late 1950s. And Miles Davis is definitely that person. Like Miles Davis is on the Esquire's top 10 list of best dressed men in 1959. And he's the first African-American man ever to be on that list. And, and of course he is, he wears Italian suits, he drives a Ferrari. I mean, Miles Davis is a star in any, para any framework that you would look at that. But I wanted to use Sonny Rollins because he is so much more, well, he's lesser known, especially back then. But he is a model of what an existential artist would do to find a deeper subjective truth and to put that into one's art form. Um, so for one thing, he experiments, like he wears a mohawk in 1959, you know, which I don't know, I don't even know where he got it but he has a Mohawk haircut. He, when he's not, he had been a heroin addict for about five years and then he kicked it. And then he has this incredible fertile period of music in the mid and late fifties. And then he's actually frustrated both with the kind of music he's making and with that. He's basically treated poorly by all the jazz clubs. He's not making much money. They treat African-Americans really poorly and so he just decides he's just going to pursue his art form. And he starts playing every night under the Williamsburg Bridge in New York for two years. And sometimes other musicians join him. And he did it for actually the most courteous of reasons. He said that he liked to play all hours of the night and he lived in an apartment building. And he, you know, didn't want, you know, wanted people to be able to sleep. So he found out on one of his walks that it was loud enough on the Williamsburg Bridge that if he played wouldn't bother anyone. So he does this for two years. And then at the end, he doesn't play clubs. And I don't really know how he, you know, makes money. But at the end of those two years, he makes an album called The Bridge, which is one of his great albums ever. And so he represents a kind of path to finding one's own subjective truth, which I think is both existential and a larger and deeper sense of what individuality might mean in a country that sort of uh, prides itself on individualism, but never really defines what that might actually mean. And I think that all the figures in the book are really defining what actually individuality might mean. I call it an earned individuality. And I think that's actually one of the synonyms for cool is an earned individuality that other people then find valuable. So you get this notion of kind of rebellion for others that comes out of kind of... Right. And so then as you're sort of coming towards the end of your discussion of Cool, you situate us in a chapter where you use two films, The Fugitive Kind and Paris Blues, to really look at hip versus cool and how these, those come out in these two films of 1960 and 1962. So can you talk a little bit about that and, and why you chose to look at look at those films and look at um, hip versus cool. So these terms have kind of converged, but back then they actually meant different things. Both of them are African-American concepts that come into culture through jazz and hip 
means in a positive sense um, to be in the know, to be somebody who knows what's happening across the board, like in a, in a minor sense in the arts, like what are the great new movies and music and people and in a sort of, you know, deep critique kind of way, like that you're hip to hypocrisy or government corruption or police brutality or racism. So the hip, someone who's hip is someone you ask what's going on, like what's happening in a variety of ways. And in fact, in a number of glossaries of the music of musicians, uh, jargon, uh, including the jazz lexicon, which is the best one in 1963, hip means somebody who is in the know streetwise, uh, someone with his eyes open and aware and people who are cool, they may be hip, but the thing we are admiring them for is being relaxed in the face of adversity and resilient. And in their art form, they have a mode of relaxation and they sort of operate from a calm center, regardless of the forces around them. Uh, and they have, in terms of body language and often even facial expression, a certain very sort of relaxed, you know, the colloquial phrase, they're comfortable in their own skin. Uh, people who are hip tend to be much more excited. You know, the beats were actually hip, right? All their metaphors were like of burning. Like, we have to go. We have to do this. Like, I want to, like, you know, see everything. And in Fugitive Kind, for example, Joanne Woodward plays what I think is the only beat woman in Hollywood film. And she's great. And she is constantly excited. She says, I want to live, 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 live. And in this one great scene with Marlon Brando, who is both cool and slow and laconic and just looking for a way to be relaxed in the world. Like he just is seeking a sort of restful, truthful place. And they hang out for a while. And she says, uh, when she says, I want to live, 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 she goes, don't you want to live? Don't you want to show people who you are? He goes, I don't want to show people who I am. You know, I just want to live and be left alone. So in a way, it's this great moment of the difference between cool, which sort of will always mean someone to some extent that you emulate who looks like they have a certain kind of control of their lives and their art form, if they're sort of public icons or wherever they're working. And someone who's hip and is kind of seeking out everything that's going on and tends to be a little more sort of high energy and nervous. So I wanted to delineate that. And then I wanted to show in a way that is, uh, is a little more disturbing in terms of racism at the time there Paris blues is uh, a movie about these two couples in Paris and the guys are jazz musicians. It's Paul Newman and it's Sidney Poitier. And these two American women come over on vacation and it's Joanne Woodward and Diane Carroll. And in the original novel, they become interracial couples in Paris. And Hollywood could not possibly stand for that. And in fact, uh, in the U.S. South, they often simply would not show any movies in Southern theaters that suggested that African-Americans were equal in any way. And certainly any kind of romantic relationship between a black man and a white woman. And so they changed the movie to lining them up by race and Paul Newman and John Woodward, who was his wife and Sidney Poitier and Diane Carroll. It's, it's not that it's a great movie and that's not even the big problem. The big problem is that Paul Newman is the jazz visionary and Sidney Poitier is just a guy in the band. So racially they even switch it such that the white guy has to be the genius 
and the African-American guy has to be the sidekick. And Louis Armstrong is in the movie as the kind of great, like, elder I totem figure of jazz. And it's his relationship with the Paul Newman character, Ram Bowen, that matters artistically and not Paul Newman's, and, excuse me, and not Sidney Poitier's. So it's this moment in which you see that, in a sense, being hip or cool, but particularly being hip, has now made its way to Hollywood, where even these very prim, proper school teachers come to Paris looking to become hip and cool. And so hanging out with jazz musicians um, who they have, you know, a fling with on vacation. And what's interesting about the movie is it winds up, if you watch it, that Diane Carroll and Sidney Poitier are both cool as actors. Their aesthetic in the movie is cool. And Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward are very much kind of like, you know, hip seekers. And I'm not trying to break it down by race and say, you know, the white couple's hip and the black couple's cool, but that is actually how the film winds up uh, registering by the end. And this leads me into a discussion of not only that Sidney Poitier wasn't allowed to be a rebel. So in our public memory, he's not a member of Brando Dean Elvis, even though he was equally talented and everyone, and he is cool in his films, but he could only play roles that basically a very kind of racist Hollywood and a very kind of racist audience would only watch him in. So he had to always be the really nice African-American guy. And being a rebel is almost the opposite of being really nice in any kind of role. And so I, I use that to get into a discussion uh, and a chapter about Lorraine Hansberry and then A Raisin in the Sun. Right. And so can you talk a little bit about that, right? Sort of this sort of end of the era and you sort, era and you sort of push on just how important Raisin in the Sun is and Lorraine Hansberry to the Black arts movement and to sort of what happens in the late 60s and into the 70s. So can you talk a little bit about her and sort of how you end your discussion of cool? Lorraine Hansberry was one of the great discoveries of this book. Um, I mean, I knew who she was. I knew about Raising in the Sun. Um, but she was, she had a truly uh, sparkling humanist vision that she acted on. And it's not really that a raisin in the sun. I mean, it's important. I just think it's misread and she doesn't immediately have a huge impact on the black art movement, which starts later, but she has a huge impact on the civil rights movement and is actually a key figure in raising money for it, giving speeches for it, um, talking with, and in a sense, radicalizing others, uh, she's best friends with James Baldwin. She's really good friends with Nina Simone. Uh, so I, but in reading about her, I just first read A Raisin in the Sun just because it's in that period. And I sort of wanted to know how to situate that. I had not planned to write an entire chapter on Lorraine Hansberry, but Lorraine Hansberry made it possible for me and enabled me to see the weakness of cool in the forties and fifties as this kind of relaxed, sort of detached iconic male posture that was not political, that was not really sort of gearing people up for change. It was in a way more about individual dignity, which I respect and needed for that time. But in a sense, she represented gearing up for um, real social and political change and protest. 
And of course, she was younger. She was female. She was African-American. She was bisexual. Um, and oddly, the two intellectual models for her, when I say odd, the odd pairing of Simone de Beauvoir, she read The Second Sex and she called it the most important book she'd ever read. And she totally understood it and wanted to enact some kind of feminist movement. And on the other hand, W.E.B. Du Bois, perhaps the most important African-American intellectual uh, of the past century, who she worked for uh, at one point and helped sort of teach as a, an assistant, but who was trying to figure out how African-Americans could become equal and liberated within American society. So she has these two people as her models. Plus, it helps that she's also a jazz fan and a blues fan and has a real um, uh, sense of the accomplishments and the culture uh, of Africa, of her own people in terms of language, in terms of music, uh, in terms of dance, and in terms of the struggle for freedom. So she actually calls out the beats, the existentialists, all those people who she sees. From her point of view, she thinks that their rebellion doesn't add up to much, that it's not really a rebellion. And she says rebellion is when you cause other people to be uplifted and you give them hope and you point them to practical ways to change things, which is why the civil rights movement is both important to her and integral to her rebellion. So here's the thing. She's famous for Raisin in the Sun, which was the first play on Broadway by an African-American woman. She was the first one to win major awards for it. She's the first African-American woman in a long time, maybe ever, to write a screenplay for it. But the movie, which is what most people see now, kind of whitewashed the play. The play is very much a precedent for all the issues in the 60s. It's about feminism. It's about African-American consciousness. It's anti-colonialist and has a thing about Africa. It's about the generation gap, you know, and kids who just want something different from their parents and can't explain it. Um, and it's about cool versus Uncle Tommy for the character played by Sidney Poitier uh, for the older son uh, in the family. And so the in the play, it's really clear. In the movie, it's not. But the other aspects I didn't know until I did research in her papers is that she wrote the first TV drama about slavery ever called uh, The Drinking Gourd. And it was the NBC executive thought it was superb and it was immediately canceled because the Southern outlets wouldn't carry the movie. So she writes the first kind of two hour made for TV thing about slavery. She writes the first anti-colonialist play ever written by an American called Le Blanc. And it's a direct response to Jean Genet's play Le Black, uh, The Blacks. Um, she debates Norman Mailer about his essay, The White Negro in the Village Voice. Um, and she when she passes on uh, tragically and very young of pancreatic cancer, the age of 34, three years later, her husband uh, puts together a set of her writings called Young, Gifted and Black, and it becomes the longest running off-Broadway show of 1968, 1969 or 69 to 70. And it also as a phrase, it's, uh, you know, it's the title of a very famous Aretha Franklin record. Um, and also Nina Simone uses it as well. And so she becomes this kind of hidden figure within a sort of very broader uh, period of black power and black pride and 
um, and the black arts movement later. And all of her work gets done in five years between 1959 and 1964. And then she passes away. Um, she also writes uh, a long photo essay called the movement uh, with uh, the civil rights workers of the South. So she's really engaged. Um, she is highly political and, and yet she believes in a multiracial, multi-ethnic pluralist vision of America and never sort of sways from it. So I thought she was an apt person to kind of end with since she's basically saying, well, this generation of cool will no longer sustain us. And then she articulates something that moves forward. And I end the book um, in 1963, really, because not only because of the assassination of JFK, but because the meanings of cool are going to shift when they're associated with the counterculture starting in the mid 1960s. And so for me, that's an entirely new book that I'm not planning to write actually. But uh, I, I thought if I do anything, if I move into the sixties, you know, sort of the symbolic idea of the sixties that this will lose, uh, it will lose its meanings. It will become too diffuse once I introduce the shifts in the term. Right. So you end sort of with this epilogue with a final definition of cool that you give and sort of um, it, it, what we are. So the afterlife, you call it the afterlives of post-war cool. So is there anything about that epilogue that you want to mention before we find out what you're thinking of doing next? <laughs> yeah, well, I'll just say fairly quickly. The real point of the epilogue is to say we kind of have three uh, categories of cool now that I think are ongoing. And one I call sort of classic cool, which comes out of noir. So you have that figure like George Clooney, who's like very classy, but very earthy, um, seems resilient in all ways. Uh, I mean, he's a better looking guy than someone like Bogart is, but he always seems to be uh, both mature and charismatic and relaxed in any given situation. And so that figure I think has become, uh, so I think that there will always be figures like that for every generation. And then you have countercultural cool, which I don't discuss in the book, but actually comes out of a very sort of like music, a rebellion out of a sex, drugs, rock and roll place in which, you know, at the moment, I think someone like Matthew McConaughey is somebody who represents sort of that version of being somebody who's a rebel, who, you know, sort of has his own, you know, stoner or trippy kind of way of being that is kind of part philosophical and has real skills, but sort of is only going to lend them on his own terms. And I actually think that Patti Smith fits in with that vision as well mm -hmm. uh, from a different sort of aspect of being countercultural and being a defiant rebel who's always going to carve out her own art. And, uh, the third one is that there's the only, the third one is African-American cool and cool retains its original meanings from the forties and fifties within African-American culture in a way that is not the in way, in a way that is not the same as how it is in sort of a mainstream use of the word cool. And so uh, in 2009, there was a cover of Ebony magazine that had the, the cover article was the 25 coolest brothers in history. 
and it had a list of 25 African-American men, um, Miles Davis and Prince and Barack Obama and Denzel Washington. And there were eight different covers and all those guys were covers, Muhammad Ali, et cetera. And it was written by Jelani Cobb, who's currently the main writer on race for The New Yorker. And he talked about cool as a certain Afro-Zen quality that might, that might go all the way back to slavery and the need to have and to create for yourself a sense of dignity within parameters that don't allow you any. And so I thought that, uh, well, I just was pausing. That's the third place of cool that is always going to have figures within African-American culture that are going to represent that. So at the moment, it's someone like Kendrick Lamar. Um, it has been more recently Samuel L. Jackson, who's also on that list. And so I just wanted to say, look, this was so important. This was such a firm, this was such a period of artistic ferment that it now has to separate into three different categories that are all, I think, fairly vital and will be with us for a long time. Mm -hmm. So this has been, this has been a great book. Like it was great talking to you. Are you working on anything right now that you can sort of to shift gears and are you work, is there anything else you're working on right now that you want to talk about? Yeah, actually, I mean, there are two things, but I'm going to talk about one of them. Um, And I have been working on uh, the cool book for more than 20 years. So of course there were fallow times, <laughs> which I was working on other projects and I'm actually, I'm working on a, an accessible book on race within the American framework. And it's not about, it's about the concept of race. It's not about sort of race relations between whites and blacks or Latinos and um, Asians. It's really about, where the concept of race comes from, how it has been used, and then attaches itself to certain historic moments, and as well, much more so about the contemporary aspects of it. Um, I've been working on this for a long time. I've been thinking about it really all my life since I grew up in Brooklyn in a period of what was then called white flight, even though it's a term that's not used as much anymore. Um, But very early on, even in high school, I just couldn't understand um, why, you know, what race was in the sense of that it caused certain kinds of reactions among people. And I began to think about it and of course started reading back then. And this book is going to bring together, you know, my own certain, there'll be a couple of stories that are from my own sort of autobiography, but it's not a memoir. And it's really about theories of race and ethnicity, the ways in which, country misreads these things, popular culture and how race manifests, even in something like Paris Blues that I discussed earlier, in ways that are both unfair uh, and also seems to reinvigorate a certain kind of white identity. In a lot of ways, it's about white identity and the problems of that. And, you know, I mean, I don't want to go into a much longer thing. But I'll just throw out that there were no white people in the world before about 1670. People did not refer to themselves as white. They were British or French or German or whatever they were. But nobody's white until the slave trade and until America has white to differentiate itself against people who are black or red like Native Americans. And so I've been thinking about this a really long time during slack times of writing this book. I would work on sections from that book. To me, the book on cool is, in fact, at a you know fairly basic level, also about race uh, in terms of African-American culture. 
But this book is really about race. It's a guide to thinking about race. And I provide some vocabulary. I want it to be really readable um, and accessible to a broad population. I suppose my goal would be that um, students would read it in like freshman seminars about race. But I'm actually about half done with it because I was working on it all these years. So I'm hoping in a couple of years that uh, that I'll have that book. Wonderful. Well, it's been really great talking with you. It's been fascinating. I really enjoyed your book and thinking about cool and these different aspects. So again, this was Joel Dinerstein with the origins of cool in post-war America for New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. Thank you so much, Joel. Thank you very much, Rebecca. This was great.